The Book of the Prophet Amos Amos was a shepherd and a fig tree farmer who lived right near the border between northern Israel and southern Judah. Now, the north had seized its independence about 150 years earlier. Remember 1 Kings chapter 12? And it was currently being ruled by Jeroboam II, a successful military leader. He won lots of battles and new territory for Israel, and he generated lots of wealth. But in the eyes of the prophets, he was one of the worst kings ever. His wealth had led to apathy, and he allowed idol worship for the gods of Canaan, which in turn led to injustice and the neglect of the poor. And it got to the point where Amos couldn't take it anymore. He sensed God calling him to go trek up north to Bethel, an important city that had a large temple, and start announcing God's word to the people. And this book is a collection of his sermons and poems and visions uttered over the years. They were compiled later to give God's people a sense of his divine message to the northern kingdom. And it's a message we still need to hear today. The book has a fairly clear design. Chapters 1 and 2 are a series of messages to the nations and Israel. Then chapters 3 to 6 are a collection of poems that express Amos' message to the people of Israel and its leaders. Chapters 7 through 9 contain a series of visions that Amos experienced that depict God's coming judgment on Israel. Let's just dive in. So the book opens with a series of short poems that accuse all of Israel's neighbors of violence and injustice. And this is kind of odd because the book's opening line said that Amos was going to speak against Israel. But watch how this works. As Amos is naming all of these neighboring nations, you can go look at a map and see that he's creating a circle. And when he's done, Israel lies right in the center, like a target in the crosshairs. And on Israel, Amos unleashes a poetic accusation that's three times longer and more intense than any of these others. He accuses Israel's wealthy of ignoring the poor and allowing grave injustice in their land, specifically by allowing the poor to be sold into debt slavery and then going on to deny any of these people legal representation. And this, Amos asks, is this the family that was once denied justice and enslaved in Egypt? The family that God rescued from oppression and slavery? The party's over, Amos says. God is done putting up with you. And so the opening of the next section explains why. God says, I chose you, Israel, from among all the families of the earth. This is an allusion to Genesis 12, how God had called the family of Abraham to become God's blessing to all of the nations. And so then God says, so this is why I will punish you for all of your sin. Israel had a great calling, which came with great responsibility. And so their sin and rebellion brings great consequences. Now, this section brings together a lot of Amos's poems, and you'll see a few key themes repeated over and over. So first, he's constantly exposing the religious hypocrisy of Israel's wealthy and their leaders. And he describes how they faithfully attend the religious gatherings, giving offerings and sacrifices, all the while neglecting the poor and ignoring injustice. And Amos says it's all a sham, that God actually hates their worship because it's totally disconnected from how they treat people. God says a real relationship with him will transform a person's relationships. And so Amos's call to true worship is to let justice flow like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Now, these two words, they're super important for Amos and actually all of the prophets. 
So righteousness, or in Hebrew, tzedakah, refers to a standard of right, equitable relationships between people no matter their social differences. And justice, or in Hebrew, mishpat, refers to concrete actions that you take to correct injustice and create righteousness. And so both of these are to permeate the life of God's covenant people like a rushing stream fills a dry riverbed. The next theme is Amos' repeated accusations of Israel's idolatry. So remember, when the northern kingdom broke away from southern Judah, their king built two new temples to rival Solomon's in Jerusalem, and he placed a golden calf in each. Remember 1 Kings chapter 12. Since then, Israel had only accumulated more idols, worshiping the gods of sex and weather and war. And in the prophet's view, the worship of these gods always led to injustice because these gods don't require the same degree of justice and righteousness as the God of Israel, not to mention that these gods were immoral themselves, not the God of Israel. He's different. So he can say in one place, seek me that you may live, and then right after that say to Israel, seek good, not evil, that you may live. So true worship of the creator God of Israel, it's synonymous with doing good, with generosity, and with justice. And so the final theme in these chapters is that because Israel and its king have rejected Amos and the other prophets, God will send the day of the Lord. This is a great and terrible act of justice on Israel. And specifically, Amos predicts that a powerful nation will come and conquer and decimate their cities and take the people away into exile. And we know his prediction came true. Some 40 years later, the Assyrian Empire swooped in and did exactly as Amos had said. The book closes with a series of visions that Amos experienced, and they're symbolic depictions of the coming day of the Lord. So he sees Israel devastated by a locust swarm, and then by a scorching fire, and then they're being swallowed up like overripe fruit. And in the final vision, Amos sees God violently striking the pillars of Israel's great idol temple at Bethel, and the whole building comes crumbling down. It's an image of God's justice on the leaders and the gods of Israel. Their end has finally come come. But then, all of a sudden, in the final paragraph, we see a glimmer of hope. It picks up this image of Israel as a destroyed building, and God says that out of the ruins, he will one day restore the house of David. In other words, he's going to bring the future messianic king from David's line, and he will rebuild the family of God's people, which, surprisingly, we're told, is going to include people from all of the nations. All of the devastation caused by Israel's sin and God's judgment will that day be reversed. Now, this final paragraph is super important. It's the only sign of hope on the other side of judgment. And it helps us see how this book is exploring the relationship between God's justice and his mercy. If God is good, he has to confront and judge evil among Israel and the nations. But his long-term purposes are to restore his world and build a new covenant family. And so through Amos' words, we still today hear his call to learn from Israel's hypocrisy and disaster and to embrace a true worship of this God, which should always lead to justice and righteousness and loving our neighbor. And that's what the book of Amos is all about. Yeah, it's a little overwhelming, huh? So the book of Amos in seven minutes. Those videos are really helpful. We've been doing those last three weeks as we started through this series called Ancient Wisdom, going through the Minor Prophets. So it gives us a framework from which to work from. And so this morning, we're going to 
actually touch on a number of passages throughout the book of Amos, but, but so you know as we walk through this, there's always this theme that runs throughout the, the minor prophets, and it starts with the bad news, and God leaning in on his people to change and repent and turn back to him, and then comes with the good news. Amos is one of those books, if you read through it, the nine chapters, you get about eight and a half or eight and three quarters chapters of bad news with like five verses of good news. Because God is leaning in heavy on his people about a particular issue in their life that they have become really, in a sense, immune to. And that is the concept of comfort. So this morning we're going to focus in on the calamity of comfort because comfort is this thing that puts us to sleep, that doesn't allow us to see the direction that we're heading in our life. And before we know it, we end down this road that we never wanted to go down, but because we're comfortable in doing it, we don't realize what's going on around us. So God addresses Israel, and he says, because of your comfort, because of your materialism, because of your, your ignoring the injustice around you, you've developed this bubble around yourself. And because of that, you're living in a certain reality that isn't reality at all. And so God brings, and I love how it even says in the, in the video, Amos finally got tired when he was, he's down in Judah. He goes to the north and says, listen, you guys have to stop living in this bubble. You're going down a road you don't want to go down. And every once in a while, I think in, in our lives, God will come along and through circumstances, he'll burst our bubble. He'll begin to make us uncomfortable, which, by the way, not a, not a disclaimer, but just, you know, this is an uncomfortable message. When I prepare each week, sometimes I know for me there's this tension and a personal reflection of what I'm grappling with in the text, which was as well for this week, and then also knowing this is hard. This is heavy. This isn't like easy stuff. But it's, again, God coming along, and just as he did thousands of years ago, he's doing it today, which is says, I'm going to burst your bubble. I'm going to get your attention because you begin to live in this bubble where you, you lose sight of what's really going on around around you, and then you end up going down a road that you don't want to go down. I think I've shared this before. One of the, those bursting bubble moments for me was when my, my cousin got married, and her and her husband, uh, were, they live up in the Bay Area, and they got married uh, in a suburb at a church, and then they, they had the reception in downtown Oakland. They, we drove into the city, and uh, it was beautiful, like a restored house that, that was basically restored to do like weddings and receptions and things like that. And so it's right, right in this park in downtown Oakland. And so when you get there, you just see this beautiful like restored house and you walk in and everything's immaculate and it's beautiful. And it's really interesting because you're in the middle of downtown Oakland, which isn't the nicest place, but you're in this beautiful surroundings and you go through the house and out to the back and there's this big balcony that overlooks this huge backyard area and it's got wrought iron fence all the way around it. It kind of encapsulates this bubble that you're in. And so when we, I remember we walked out to the reception, there's this string quartets playing and all the tables are perfectly set and everything's just right. The weather's beautiful. It's like this gorgeous day. And so as we made our way to our table, I, I started to look closer at the wrought iron fence that was around the perimeter of the yard. And it, what it was there for is it, it separated the public park on the other side from this private kind of house. And so as I looked, I, I could see all, every probably so, so many feet, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 feet, there was just a little sign that was on the inside of the fence facing inside the yard. And I couldn't read it from a distance, so I, I walked over and I got closer. And when I read it, when I first read it, I almost thought somebody put this as, here as a joke. But it wasn't. It actually said on all these signs about every 10 or 12 feet, it said, please don't feed the homeless. And that statement was there because just on the other side of this fence was a public park where many homeless people lived. And they had figured out that when these people who have lots of money are having a reception, that they could come to that gate or that fence, and if they asked, that some people would actually give them food. And because this establishment didn't want that to happen because it would give them a bad name, they made sure they told their guests not to feed people through the fence. And I remember when I saw that, it just hit me. I thought, here we are 
and my aunt and uncle are probably paying 50 to $100 a plate for this incredible reception, and just on the other side of this fence are people who barely, barely can survive, and we're told, no, you can't, you have to ignore their presence, just enjoy yourself and do what you're going to do, and I remember most of us said, forget that. So we're eating, and we're all walking over the fence, and there's like this line outside the rod, and whatever we could fit through the fence, we gave away. But I remember that that stuck with me because I, I, as I'm enjoying this moment, it's like God said, just so you know, you can enjoy this moment, but don't forget the brokenness outside these gates because that's the reality. That's not the bubble that you want to live in, and you have to remember that. And so Israel had gotten to that place in their existence where they were living in this bubble, and because of that, they were they were turning away from the injustice that was happening around them. So there's four things that, that kind of define the, the calamity of comfort in our life that are defined here in Israel's history. And I want to just mention those as we go through some different passages. But chapter 6, verse 1, there's this verse. It says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. That's the warning embedded in the middle of this book that says, Woe to you who are finding yourself at ease and comfortable and everything's just the way you want it to be because you're, you're missing on what's going on around you. But four things that kind of you and I can understand from Israel's history that is made, maybe true for ours today. And the first one is this. The calamity of comfort comes when our, we are self-centered. So Acts, or excuse me, Amos chapter 2. Let me read verse, verse 6 through 8. So thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same woman so that my name may be profaned or is profaned. They lie, lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So God's describing what's going on here. This indulgence, this materialism, this kind of self-centered lifestyle to the point where he's describing something pretty horrific. That, that people are making profit off the shoulders of the poor. That literally, literally to, the, to the point where in, in that day and age when someone who had a debt to pay but they could not pay it, they could give their one possession outside their own clothing, which was a cloak or a, a blanket that they would use at night as a pledge to pay that back. And it was always known that and when the evening came, the person who was holding that cloak was re- to return it to the poor person so they could be warm at night. And God said, you're literally not even giving that back. You're keeping that for yourselves at night. And then even talking about how a father and a son are actually uh, uh, having relations with the same woman. This is kind of the depth of the blindness to the brokenness in them. And God's highlighting all these things as a life that's become completely self-centered and self-focused that doesn't see anything going on around itself. And I know all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, know there are one or two or ten or a hundred times in our life where that's happened where our life becomes so centered in on what we want and what we think is best for us and how we want to be comfortable, which we live in a culture that tells us that if you are comfortable, then you have reached the goal of why we exist. And God's saying, no, that, that's the opposite. That's the opposite. And so, so sometimes when we're so self-focused, we don't realize that what we're doing and the decisions we're making are actually negatively impacting somebody else because all we can see is ourselves. So Kim and I were down in, in Orange County and took a, a, a couple of days off, probably about a three or four weeks ago. And uh, so got up in the morning, and it was, we kind of slept in, and so I was hungry, she was hungry. So I, I ran to Starbucks to, to get a little bit of our addiction. So I'm on my way to Starbucks. It's, it's, it's a Saturday morning. Not a ton of people are on the road. And so as I went down to the, take the last turn, then I was going to turn left into this parking lot where there was a Starbucks. I looked to my left as I'm turning right, and there's, there's four lanes on this road, and there's nobody there. 
So I'm just, I'm turning, and uh, seriously, I'm just thinking, I am so hungry. I need a mocha and a lemon pound cake from Starbucks, and then I'll be satisfied. So I'm just, I'm, I'm just, like, honing in on that. So as I turn, I'm looking, and in my mind, I saw nobody because all I could see was Starbucks. And so as I turned, I literally just flew across four lanes of traffic. There was nobody on the road, as far as I could tell, until I got to the fourth lane. And just as I pulled in that lane, there was somebody literally right on top of me. I mean, I couldn't even see their bumper. That's how close they were. And as I look back, there was some motion with a hand. I didn't bother to look real closely because I could figure out what it was. And so then I quickly had to turn left about 100 yards in. So I turned left. And as they went by, there was another hand motion that I didn't care to look for. And I turned into the driveway. And I, and I thought, where in the world did that person come from? Did they just appear out of nowhere? They had always been on the road. They were probably always there when I looked to the left, when I turned right. But because I was so focused on what I wanted, I couldn't see them. Now, there's something actually a lot deeper and a lot more troubling than just cutting somebody off that you don't see. Because all of us do that all the time. Wouldn't we agree? But there's something deeper that God's talking about that we do when we become self-focused and self-centered. And it's what Israel was doing thousands of years ago. And what's what we do sometimes unknowingly today. And that is we end up making sure that we're comfortable at the expense of other people. So let me, let me give you a, a, a typical scenario that probably has unfolded for many of us in this room. So let's say you want to get some work done on your house. So you have three different contractors come in, and you want bids to see how much it costs and what kind of quality their work is. And so you get all three bids, and of course the top one says, the reason I'm so expensive is because I, you're going to get the best quality with me. And then the, the middle person kind of explains how there's a balance between what they can do and the quality they have. And then the third person saying, listen, I have a way in my business to give you the lowest possible price with the highest quality uh, uh, value and the, the, the best, finest things that you're going to have in your house. So we all look at that and think, I'll go with what? The cheapest price. If it's going to give me the best value, if he has a way to, to do what the guy who's top price to do, but do it for a less expensive, I'm going to go with him. Wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't most of us do that? We don't want to pay more than we have to. We want to get a good price. But what we don't know is that what's a, what's a good possibility? Not, I'm not saying this of all contractors, but what's going on behind the scene is how is he so far below the other price of the other two, yet offering the same high quality? How is he doing that? Because for him, he cuts his costs in labor. Because he's hired people who are in our country and are undocumented. And he knows when he hires them, he doesn't have to pay them minimum wage. Because they're off the books. They're under the table. So he doesn't pay them what they're worth, which is more than minimum wage for what they're going to do. He pays them less than minimum wage, saves the money, and then says, listen, I have the cheapest price. What is he doing? What are we doing? We are making a profit and allowing ourselves to be comfortable at the expense of somebody else who may be put in, putting in 12 hours of work but getting paid a third of what they're worth. Now, I bring that up because that happens in our city almost every single day. It happens in our country over and over and over and over again. So when we look at Israel, we go, oh, yeah, you guys had it. You guys missed it. You guys were in the bubble. No, no, no. Look at us today. How many times do we make a decision based on price not realizing that price comes at the expense of somebody else? It happens with our electronics. It happens with our Nikes. It happens with our clothing. That sometimes if we're not careful, not that we can do all the research, but we are purchasing things at the lowest price, not realizing somewhere on the other side of the world, someone is barely surviving off what they're making, putting in 14-hour days. That's the very thing that God's talking about. Listen, you've gotten so much in the bubble that you're immune or you don't see the injustice around you of what you're doing and what it's doing in the lives of other people. And then going on, 
Second, I know these are not easy. This doesn't get any easier. Second thing of, of the calamity of comfort is self-reliance. So we're self-focused or self-centered, and then we become what we think is self-reliant. So God reminds Israel in Amos 2, verses 9 through 11, he says, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorites before them, whose height was like the, the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised you up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. It, it is indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. So what is God saying? Listen, you are where you are because of what I've done for you and how easily it was for Israel and how easy for us to forget the goodness of God's grace and mercy in our life, God's provision in our life, God's favor in our life that gets us into a place in life where we look at things and think, wow, this is good. And we start off by saying God is good and then eventually it's just good. And we forget, how did we get there? How did Israel forget? They, they what? They, God miraculously sends plagues and he gets their attention. Then he parts the Red Sea, gets them out of Egypt. And then they quickly forget it was God who got them there. How many times in our life do we come in the bubble and we're in the bubble and we think, I've got myself here. We look around in our lives and look at what we've accomplished or what we've done and we've forgotten. There's this huge factor called God that has, he's the one that's done everything. And so we realize we're not there because of anything we've done. We, we haven't earned that. God has blessed us. And because of that, we have to acknowledge and remember that's who is, is the reason that we're here. That's not because we've done anything great on our own. And in a sense, we're living our lives out representing what God has done, not what we have earned on our own. Anybody watch the Olympics a few weeks ago? So we won the medal count. Go USA. Exciting stuff. So all of us are probably aware of the name Ryan Lochte. Anybody heard of Ryan Lochte? Probably not because of what he did in the swimming pool, but because of what he did in a gas station in Rio. And that is because, you know, if you don't know his story, he and a couple of his swimming buddies, they had finished their last event, and they wanted to go party, so they went and got drunk, and on their way back to the Olympic Village, they stopped at a gas station, they vandalized it, and then, uh, to make matters worse, he kind of uh, expanded a little bit on the story and made it sound like they were robbed at gunpoint, which obviously didn't reflect too well on those in Rio and Brazil, and so it became kind of this international incident. And uh, you can be praying for Ryan Lochte, because even right now, he's struggling with getting the fact this one very important fact. When he was down in Rio, he wasn't representing himself. He was representing our country. Everything he did while he was there representing the United States, he forgot that. He thought what he was doing in the pool, he thought what he was doing in the gas station was about Ryan Lochte, but it wasn't. It was about millions of people who he's representing as, as a representative of our country. So, which, by the way, I think all of us could relate to making a bad decision in our life, but we just didn't happen to make a bad decision in the middle of the Olympics that hit social media and went global, okay? But, you know, as this is unfolding and Ryan Lochte and his negative uh, kind of press got more kind of airtime because we love the negative, there is another story that unfolded at almost the same time that most people miss. There's a pole vaulter from the United States. His name is Sam Kendricks, and Sam uh, is part of the military, he's been in the military, and he ended up winning the bronze, which is pretty cool. He didn't win the gold, but he won the bronze. But what's significant was not necessarily what he did in winning the bronze, it's what happened before that. So you can go on YouTube and check it out, it's amazing. So this, this guy understood the difference between Sam and Ryan is that Sam realized he wasn't there to represent himself, he was there to represent his country. 
So he's in the pole vault, so he starts down the runway to get ready to, to put the pole into the hole and jump over the bar and onto the pit and onto the pad to win the bronze. And halfway down the runway, he hears the national anthem playing, our national anthem. He drops his pole to the ground and stops and stands at attention until the song ends. It was amazing. And then he picks his pole up, he walks down, and he tries again, and he wins the bronze. Why in the world would he do that? Because as he's running, something very near and dear to him was our national anthem that he obviously had a very deep connection with being in the military and realized as I'm running down this runway to the pole vault, I am doing this not for myself. I'm doing this for my country. So he stops in his tracks. That's the difference, I think, what God is getting at with Israel. He's saying, listen, you think that you are here because of you. You're not here because of you. You're here because of me. Sam Kendricks realized that he had the freedom to do what he did to be in the Olympics because of the nation that he came from, and that's what he was responding to, whereas Ryan Lochte, somewhere down the line, lost sight of that, that he was representing something larger than himself. Third thing, the calamity of comfort also means that we become self-indulgent, or self-indulgence is a sign of it. <clears throat> Amos chapter 4, verse 1. If if I wouldn't have read this in my Bible, I would have never thought it was there. But listen to these words. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, and who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. So what's the secret message? There's no secret message. God is calling the women of Israel cows. It's pretty harsh. I remember the first time I read this. I was in high school. I was in a small group in our, in our high school group that was going through the book of Amos. And we got here, and I read this. I'm like, are you kidding me? God's calling women cows? I never knew that was in the Bible. I had to pull out commentaries to figure out, is this real? What is God saying? What God was referring to is there is a, a very, very lush pasture land northeast of the Sea of Galilee, which is known as Bashan, and that's where the cows would graze. And those cows in particular were known for their plumpness because they were feeding very well, and they were waiting ready for the slaughter. And so what God is saying, listen, which by the way, guys, you don't get off just because he says cows of Bashan, referring to the women. This is a blanket statement, but he's, he's targeting the women. He's saying, listen, you're just like those cows who feed in the really lush grass, not even knowing that once you finish that meal, you're about to walk into slaughter, because you're such in the bubble of your self-indulgence, you don't see what's going on around you. So when God says that, he He's trying to get our attention. He's saying your indulgence and your belief that you have a right to indulge has overrode your ability to actually see what's going on around you, especially when it comes to injustice, that you've lost sight of the brokenness around you, you've lost sight of people around you. Why? Because you're so self-indulgent that you can't see that, that you value what you can consume and what you can eat more than the people around you. Now, some of us would think, well, I would never do that. You know what? All of us probably have at one time or another, and some of us actually may struggle with it this afternoon when you go out to lunch. On a much smaller scale, when you go to a restaurant and you sit down, you're expecting two things, quality food and good service, right? That's why you usually will go to a restaurant. And when you sit down, maybe this has happened to you. You sit down in your favorite restaurant, and you realize when the server comes to the table and he or she does something, you realize they're not on their game. They're not attentive. They're not quick. 
They're not doing what they're supposed to. And so when you order your food, it takes longer than it should. And it comes out and it's cold and it's not the way you ordered it. And you're wanting to get a refill on your drink and they're nowhere to be found. And so inside of you, you're starting to get angry. Because I'm paying for good service here, right? Anybody want to relate? You've been this way or it's just me. I'm the only one, right? So what happens is in your mind and your, your tip meter starts going down, right? You're like, yeah, it was 15 or 20%. Now it's close to 10. Now it's getting down to 5. And here's the crazy thing, by the way, when you go out after church, if you talk about God, be careful. Because that tip you leave is directly tied to your testimony. And no offense, but don't leave a track with a, a 2% tip. Because you're leaving a track that says, hey, the most generous God in the universe died for you, but here's a 2% tip. Doesn't fly, Okay. But just understand, so what are we doing? We're getting mad at this individual because we don't get our food when we want it and the way we want it. And because of that, we value the food more than we value the individual. We've got to talk to the manager. I'm going to get a free meal. And you're losing sight. This is one meal. Servers, you hear me? Anybody experience that at the hands of somebody else? Yeah. Not very fun, is it? Your food is not more important than the server who serves it. They're human, and they have an eternity in mind that God has for them beyond the food that you eat. We do that. Obviously, Israel was doing that in different ways, but we do that as well. And then there's a fourth thing, and that is the calamity of comfort also has to do with self-righteousness. Instead of God-righteousness, the righteousness comes from him, we become self-righteous. Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 24 God says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What is God saying? You can be religious and you miss it completely. You can live in a religious bubble that does the, all the religious activities of what a Christian's supposed to do or a follower of God's supposed to do and yet miss it completely. This is pretty harsh. God's saying, listen, I can't stand when you get together and you sing songs and you give those fake greetings to each other and you do what you're doing when your heart's not in it. Because you walk out the doors of the church and are immune to the brokenness in your community, but you just went to church so you feel good about yourself. Why? Because you went to church out of a self-righteous attitude, which was to justify yourself, not to engage with the body or the community as we worship together and we engage with each other. And then we go out into the world and we care for people who are dealing with issues of injustice in their life. This is what was going on thousands of years ago. It still happens today in our lives. That we can be very religious. We can sing songs and come to church and smile at people and then go out into our world and be immune to the brokenness around us. I saw this firsthand when we were up in Oregon and Newburgh when we were pastoring. Uh, The church that we were pastoring, it was in an older building. And when it was built, it was built right in the middle of a, a residential area. So it wasn't like what we have here where this is industrial and so that the parking is a little bit easier. But, but where we were, we were embedded in a neighborhood. And we had a total of seven parking spaces. The church was 700 people with seven parking spaces. So you can imagine the nightmare of parking. Every Sunday, you would, the later you got to church, you were four, five, six, seven blocks away, you'd park, and then you'd have to walk in. And that was the battle that we went through every single Sunday. There was a problem, though. And I picked up on this early on when we were there, and this is something that the previous pastor struggled with too. And the typical thing would happen. So 
someone's coming to church, they tried to get the kids out of the house quick, and they're late, they're running 15 or 20 minutes late, and so they get to the church, the service is already going, it's third service, so it's packed, they can't find parking, so they park eight blocks away, and all they can find is four feet of space between one, the bumper of a car and the beginning of a driveway, and they think their eight-foot car can somehow fit in four feet of space, so they park there blocking somebody's driveway. This happened over and over and over again. The reason I know that, Monday morning we come into the office to a list of voicemails saying, hey, just want you guys to know that people are parking in front of my driveway. I went out to the supermarket on Sunday morning, and when I drove back, I couldn't get, get back in my driveway, and there was no parking around, so I had to park like three blocks from my own house, and I'm not happy. And that was very kind of like the G-rated version of usually what we would get. And it kept happening over and over and over and over again. Because I loved our people, but our people were just, they lay completely blank when it came to the reality that you're blocking somebody's access to their house. So we had to put a bunch of money into signs that went out all over the neighborhood, and we actually would actually put, in fact, we'd ask people if they would want it, and we would put a sign in their front yard that said, resident parking only. It would be near their driveway, and then even if we wanted, they, would you like one or two spaces in front of your house that nobody from our church will park at? And they said, yeah, I'll take one or two. And so we would put the signs up, and people knew at the church, don't park there, because the neighbors parked there. And eventually, they stopped, stopped hating us, which was good. Some of them eventually did start coming to church, but that took a while, and it took a while for our people to realize this is somebody's home. This may be your church for the next hour and a half or two hours, but this is where somebody lives because we had lost sight. Why? Because I'm on the way to church today, and I'm loving my family, even though I can't stand them because I'm mad at them because they didn't get out of the house on time, which none of us relate to, right? And we lose sight of the people around us. Now, we don't have that problem because nobody lives in this area. But how many times in our life are we so consumed with doing church and doing religious activities that we are blind to the people around us that are broken? We are not to go to church, we're to be the church. And that means we see the brokenness and the injustice around us. So I'm going to ask you if you would close your eyes and just for a moment, just for, we're going to go into the last point. But before we go into the last point, I just want to kind of refocus here, okay? So just with your eyes closed to focus in on what, what I want to say. You've heard the bad news, you've heard the calamity of comfort. Now here's the good news. Okay, I want you to hear, I'm going to read this passage. You don't have to look on the screens. I just want you to hear the words of God's restorative heart towards his people. Even though they're broken, even though we live in the bubble, God's ultimate desire is to burst our bubble for this reason. So listen to these words in Amos 9, 11 through 15. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its branches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Eden and all Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of the grapes who, he, who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Open your eyes. I just wanted you to hear the vividness of the description that God gives of what it looks like for restoration to happen. It's, he's saying, listen, you've been in this season where you're working really hard, but then there's going to become the time of harvest. Where you're no longer treading out the grapes, you're actually drinking the wine. 
You're getting to participate in that. And God's saying, listen, the reason I've come to burst your bubble is because if you live in that bubble, you will never see the restoration of your lives. But if you allow that bubble to be burst and step out of your comfort to see what I'm up to, you will experience the depth of restoration in your heart that you never thought was possible. And I want to close with this. One of the things that you and I have to understand about the way God works, God doesn't bring calamity on us all the time. But I believe sometimes he allows things to happen. So when we go through difficult seasons in our life and we see things are happening, there are a number of different factors at play. It could be just the consequences of the reality of being human and living in the world. It could be because the enemy is trying to distract us from what God wants to do. Or it could be, in fact, that God is using all of those together to say, listen, I'm going to burst your bubble because I love you enough to not allow you to keep going down the road that you're going down. And I've, a f- I've had a few of those moments in my life where the discomfort of my life got so great, God finally burst the bubble. Because the only answer to our comfort is discomfort. So I've shared bits of this journey before, but when we planted our church in Ventura a number of years ago, I had the script. I had the script laid out for my life and for the church and the way it was supposed to go. We were living in a small apartment, and we just, both the kids had been born, and so we moved into a house as we planned the church. So the church office had a place, and then we had a little bit more space. So we, we moved into this beautiful house, and it was like everything was good. This church is planting. We're, we're launching out. We're in a nice house. And then a year in, as the church slowly, really slowly started to develop, we get a call from our landlord, and the landlord says, listen, can you guys come up with like, three or four hundred thousand dollars and buy the house (laughs) like no i'm a church planner i don't have any money he said well then you guys are gonna have to move because i have to sell the house so we're like okay all right god you're gonna provide so we got another house and it was a little smaller but it was nice and so we thought okay god now the church house the church office is there and the church is still slowly growing way too slowly for my patience and so things aren't going the way they're supposed to so we moved in this other house a year later we get a call from the landlord same thing hey i need to move back into my house you guys have to move out like, okay, so then we're like scrambling to find housing, and there was always this one apartment complex that Kim and I had looked at and said, we will never live there. <laughs> That's the place that we ended up in. That's the only thing that was available. So we move into this apartment, and at the same time, just a, f- a little while before, because th- when the kids were born, we, we made sure that we were, we were trying to ma- manage our money well, so we went down to one car. So we went out of one big house to a smaller house to a really small apartment and down to one car. So now, there were days when Kim had the kids, and I didn't have a car, so I had to walk to the office. So I'm thinking, okay, this is not the script that I had laid out. The church is struggling. I'm struggling. Everything's supposed to be good. I'm living in Ventura, which has, like, the perfect climate. It's, like, eternally 75 degrees, right? In the town that my wife grew up in, that I love and I'm enjoying, this is how it's supposed to unfold, and the church is going to be like the next greatest thing, and all of that is falling down around me. And I remember days walking from the apartment that, by the way, it had society garlic, which I hate. It's a beautiful flower, but it stinks. And to this day, when I smell society garlic, it takes me right back to one of the lowest moments of my life. So if you have that in your yard, don't ever invite me over, okay? <laughs> but I'm walking out of our apartment. I'm headed to the office. I'm walking Two with no, no transportation. And I remember just those days of walking and saying, God, really? This is, this is, what, this is what this is about. I, I should never have planted the church. I was safe as an associate pastor. I was, had it easy. At least I knew my paycheck was guaranteed. And now we're out risking everything for you, and it's not working. And God was silent. And that cycle went on for three or four years. Just plugging away and thinking, God, where are you? God, where are you? God, where are you? Now, 
I finally got to the place where God said, listen, I'm making you uncomfortable because you're trying to live in a bubble that I never designed you to live in. And if you live in that bubble, you're going to keep going down a road that's further and further away from me. And finally, after four years, God came along and he burst that bubble. And this is what he said. He said, it's not about you. It took him four years to get to that point. It's not about you. And it reminded me, he said, this is what God said to me. You're trying to be the Lord of the church and you were never designed to be that. I'm the Lord of the church. You're not. And so I'm like, oh, that's a relief. I don't have to be the Lord of the church. It was like this earth-shattering thing. And he said, it's all about you. Pastoring's all about you. You don't care about the people that you're pastoring. You just care about what they can do for you. You just care about the people who walk in the door and make the attendance go up. That's all you care about. It's not about, it can't be about you. It has to be about them and about the world. And there was this transformation that God brought me through that realized I had lived in this reality that said it is all about me. It is about what I want to do with the church. It is about my comfort and my paycheck and where I want to live and how I want to do it. And God says, no, it's not about you at all. Can I tell you, and Kim could tell you this, after I went through that, I was so much more happy because I realized for the first time in my life, it isn't about me. It doesn't have to be about me. It's about God. And when it's about God, there's this freedom that everything that I have really is a blessing from God. And I don't have to grasp for anything because God provides what I need. And I don't have to strive for comfort because I realize if God wants me to be comfortable, I'll let him make me comfortable. Meanwhile, I don't have to make myself comfortable. I don't have to go for the goal of our culture. I just have to be what God created me to be. And if that means I'm uncomfortable, oh, well, that means I know that God is at work. But God comes, and this is what I'm going to pray for us today, even though it's hard, that God would burst all of our bubbles. Get us. He did it for Israel, and he can do it for us today to bring us to a place where we really hear his voice and follow him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we come to a conclusion in, in worship, Lord, for these last few moments, I, I ask that, Lord, it, it, discomfort is never something that we pray for. We don't get up, Lord, in the morning and ask that you would make us uncomfortable today, but if we are living in a bubble, Lord Jesus, that we have created around us that sometimes makes us numb to the brokenness around us, to the injustice that's happening to people to the world around us and all we can see is ourselves. I pray that today, as you warned your people thousands of years ago, you warn us today that we would not live out the calamity of comfort that leads to destruction in our lives. Lord, that we know that a God-centered life, an other-centered life, is what ultimately leads to restoration in us. So Lord, I pray right now, just even as we we reflect on these last couple of songs and we give our heart and our attention to you that, Lord, where are those areas? Maybe there's things, Lord, that we're, we're blind to, we're not seeing, and you're going to open our eyes in these next few moments. Lord, maybe there's some of us today and that we, in the midst of trying to be comfortable, we're miserable. And today you're wanting to come and saying, stop. Stop trying to make yourself happy, trying to make yourself comfortable, and for us to rely on you. So, Lord, whatever it is by your spirit that you want to accomplish in us from the book of Amos, then, Lord, by your spirit, accomplish your purpose in us today. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.